0: Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the Sustainable Development Goals and the Roadmap to 2030.
1: We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast.
0: SDG Talkers, welcome back. In this episode, you're going to hear from Colin Manham, who has an extensive background in the natural and applied sciences with a special focus around biomimicry. What is biomimicry? Biomimicry. According to the Internet, it's a design and production of materials, structures and systems that are modeled on the biological entities and processes. Long and short, it means copying nature for human innovation. Colin's going to break this down and explore how nature has unlocked some of the human's biggest innovations throughout time. Looking at examples around how beetles take moisture out of the air, how we've looked at whale fins to design turbines to how we've studied termite mounds for natural cooling and heating of structures. Colin's gonna break this down further and even talk about the power of ecosystem services for humankind, which are free when you let nature do its thing. Colin's a wealth of knowledge around biomimicry and I know you're gonna enjoy this podcast. Take care. So in its simplest form, what is biomimicry?
1: You know, it sounds like a strange word but if you break it down into bio and mimicry, if you're mimicking biology, it seems pretty straightforward at that point. But the definition we often use in the biomimicry circles is that it's the conscious emulation of nature's genius. And that, that's actually one of Janine Bendis' quotes. And she's, she's the matriarch, let's say, of, of biomimicry. She really effectively coined the term, uh, wrote the seminal book on the subject in 1997, biomimicry, innovation inspired by nature. And that's what it is. It's innovation inspired by nature. And we'll, of course, you know, Kevin, we're going to have a bunch of examples as we go along here, but but it really is looking at nature's, you know, forms, how things are shaped, and, and of course, what is the function of that shape? Nature's processes of how things are made, and then also nature's systems—like how do all these things, you know, interrelate? And that's a huge part. If we're talking about the UN SDGs, it's a huge part of how we look at interrelation between species—not uh, just our own, but also with all of our neighboring species that, in fact, provide ecosystem services that you know deliver a lot of value to us. So. That's the short form of it, and I can give you some examples as we go along.
0: I love it, and I feel like throughout my entire life, I've always maybe I'll, I'll be looking at a computer, or I'll be just maybe sit inside and, and maybe get a little antsy, or just wanting to get outside, and and always have felt my my most true self and most inspired and creative self when I'm outside, and and whether it's walking around the lake and seeing trees. Grow leaves in the spring and then lose those leaves in the fall, and then kind of just thinking about how the tree is sort of a just an ongoing circle of life of how it's taking oxygen, taking CO two and turning to oxygen, and performing photosynthesis and creating life with those leaves in the soil. And I'm not a biologist by any means, but just kind of staring at a tree and looking at the circularity, always fascinating me. And I would love to kind of hear from kind of your story and your background and growing up in Louisiana, like how did just like going into the woods and, and staring at nature, like how did that inspire you and, and kind of get you some of these ideas that you've learned in regards to sort of what has been biomimicry and what is it today?
1: So there's so much to unpack there. You gave me so many things to run with there. Well, look, I think that the first thing to say is that's in all of us. Just this, uh, we talk about biophilic design and biophilia, largely coined by, you know, E.O. Wilson. As a species, we're drawn to nature because, frankly, that's most of our existence has been out in nature. And that's where we become, you know, more attuned to things when you're out in it because you're you're not numb to the things of our, our modern world. And, and, in fact, there's a whole study around you know just even clothing and how wearing clothing and wearing shoes you know disconnects us from from the natural world it used to be that we could feel just the slightest breeze on you know going through the the hairs on my arm and i would be able to tell you the weather you know it's that type of thing but if you go back to you know what you mentioned about louisiana it was a pretty early age i our family was not conventional, I guess, in our recreation. <laughs> on Saturdays, we all five of us, my brother, my father, my sister, my mom, jumped on motorcycles and went out in the woods in the, in the pine pine forest of, of Louisiana. We lived on a road called Pines Road, and we all jumped on motorcycles. I was on a bicycle at five, and I think it was before I was six that I was on a motorcycle. And the very first one I, I got, I actually ran it straight into a tree, and they said, well, maybe that, that, that was a little big for them. They didn't think. You know, maybe you shouldn't be on a motorcycle at five. But just, just need a little bit more practice. Yeah, let's get a smaller one, you know. Yeah. So they put me on this little Indian MR50. Well, the Honda the MR50. I'm giving you a bunch of details here. but But I used to go out in the woods on a motorcycle with my family. And then on Sundays, we would go out. I would be in a, in a tiny little sailboat, really a, a one-person sailboat, but I'd sit in it with my dad, and, and he would race at the yacht club on Sundays. So I got out into nature quite a bit. I, you know, Louisiana is also called the sportsman's paradise. I did one time sit in a deer stand, hoping that a deer would not come by because I had some peer pressure around me. But I used to love to get out there and the fishing camps and everything. And so I'll tell you, kind of fast forward. I somewhere in high school, I decided I, I wanted to be a doctor. And so I went down that path and I excelled in physics and, and biology and chemistry. And and I jumped right into it and I was, I majored in the life sciences, I majored in microbiology and zoology. And somewhere about two and a half years into my undergrad, I said, you know, I hate to even say it out loud, but I, I don't think I'm cut out to be a doctor. You know, it's not like I have a, you know, a gag reflex when I see blood or something, but I just thought that that wasn't going to be my my way to serve the world. And so I did a pivot right then and there, and I pivoted to marketing and branding and business. And I could tell you it was not because the money. It was about the psychology. It was about the ability to present you know, words and visuals that could maybe help someone make a great choice in something that might enhance their lives. And so the point of that is that from that point in time, I've been marketing the life sciences ever since. And so it's just been a natural inclination and it feels like home. And I just, I love getting out in it, but I also love finding little bits of nature in an urban environment. I'm sitting in, you know, not LA, Louisiana, but in Los Angeles. And we got a bunch of people here. we got a bunch of concrete, we got a bunch of steel, but we also have some amazing pockets of nature here and so that's pretty much my story i could tell you where I, where I got introduced to it and all that along the way but i'm going to kick it back to you
0: no that's good and, and i actually i likewise grew up in los angeles and spent my summers in wisconsin and just was always around water and it was around 2013 when i stumbled across the book called blue mind by Wallace Mm -hmm. J. Nichols, which is a whole study about why humans are happier, healthier, more productive when we're on, in, near, on water. And I remember hearing that and I was like, just clicked. And I was like, wow, when I'm outside, I feel happier. When I'm outside, I'm more creative and it just feel my most natural self. And I think too, like you said, our bodies being, we've always been exposed to nature and, and clothes in certain ways have, yes, made us in some regard, more resilient, but also making it somewhat unnatural. I mean, we we grew up throughout quite a bit of history without needing excessive amounts of clothes to get by. Another person I I follow and and research quite a bit is is Wim Hof. He's kind of the, the crazy Dutchman. You know, he always is all about exposing ourselves to the cold, and our heart is capable of a lot more than than we allow it to, because oftentimes we're putting ourselves in heating room, heated rooms or air conditioning. And you know, and it, that may or may not be detracting from this core concept of biomimicry, but nonetheless, I digress into the whole concept of how humans and how we can ultimately look back to nature as a source of inspiration and, and not necessarily trying to overcomplicate things. And, and one thing I've heard you say before is this whole idea of looking in the rear view mirror and the whole like Jurassic Park of, objects in the mirror are closer than they appear nature has been doing its thing since the dawn of time whether it was the big bang or who knows when nature really started but nature has been doing this thing for quite some time how has nature continued to innovate over the years and i know without kind of speaking to the human aspect but like how does nature innovate and like how does what are some examples that you could give in regards to whether it's animals or ecosystems, and maybe and speak to how that connects to, you know, the future design thinking of biomimicry.
1: The sort of quippy answer I'll give you is it innovates slowly. And that's that's actually it's important to note as we go through this because nature's on a different timescale. You know, what you do in biomimicry is you look back to nearly four billion years of research and development, right? And that happened over a long, long period of time. It just, 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 it's hard to even fathom how evolution has taken place in just tiny little, frankly, a lot of it was errors, little, little changes, you know, that nature replicates strategies that work. And so whatever the strategies those were that worked, it, it continued on and it was passed forward into the, into the next generation. That's basically evolution, but it takes a long, long time for these things to come about. And by the way, I, I do have that book, Blue Mind, The Surprising Science. It shows how being near in, in or underwater can make Love you it. happy, healthier, et cetera. And I have another book next to it that I'm gonna tell you real quick and I'll come back directly to the to the question, which is, this one's called Burt's Hall of Great Inventions. This is a little golden book from, I think, 1964. So <laughs> this is Sesame Street. And the whole thing is about Bert and Ernie and Bert says, hey, you know, look, I've invented the pincers. And look, he's got these, you know, this this device, this tool. And, and Ernie says, well, no, you know, my lobster friend can do better than that, you know. And so, and I've invented the hose, Ernie, and and Ernie says, "No, well, look, look. The my elephant friend could do that." So I'm just saying that because it's these notions have been around for a long time. It's, simply put, it's really easy to get. And I think the simplest, you know, the most popular version of biomimicry we talk about is Velcro, right? And it's interesting because Velcro is is based upon that that burr that you maybe got caught on your. I mean, I certainly in, in Louisiana did. We get these burrs on our socks and on our clothes. And then you know, the Swiss engineer. George de Mistral just found it on his dog. And, you know, he was geared as an engineer to, to think about well, what is that? How does that work? And so he was already inclined to question the mechanism. But out of that came Velcro. And I think one of the more important things about that, especially we're talking about, let's say, you know, the SDGs and, and, and particularly things like, you know, affordable and clean energy, that the whole design of Velcro came out of a design that was meant to, support a zero energy process. A plant sits in one place, it's literally rooted in place, and an animal brushes up against that plant, and that little seed hooks onto the animal fur, plant stays right where it is, and the animal distributes, propagates the seed out to wherever it eventually rubs it off on a tree or drops it off, the fur comes off, what have you, but the plant just sits there. So it's created a zero energy process other than the you know the energy it takes to actually form the seeds for something to push it out there. And so it's, it's a little-known fact about velcro it's also i think little known unless unless you're uh french speaking that it, it sounds it stands for velour crochet or velvet hook so velour crochet is velcro so practical <laughs> <laughs> you know but it, i think it's fascinating and i'll tell you you know if you want some other examples around that i mean how does nature done it over the you know the years one example is that you know modern humans have been around you know not that long compared to sharks 400 to 450 million years, right? And we're killing them off at an unsustainable rate. So that's another conversation we could have. But the interesting thing I found with sharks is that there's a whole, if you look at the texture, you, Kevin, have you ever petted a shark? You're from LA, right? Oh, yeah. Gone to SeaWorld or something. So, you know, then you know that you one direction is smooth and the other direction is rough. And that's because it has, you know, the skin has what, what are called dermal denticles or skin teeth. And it's like seeing a bunch of little shark teeth, you know, that are layered at a very, very small scale, like 1 the width of a human hair. And so what that has emu- been emulated to become in, in the biomimicry world is a texture that you can't even see any of that, that you can put on a thin film, that you can put on a hospital bed rail or, or door panel, and it disallows bacteria a place to propagate, to, to you know, to create more bacteria. Right. And so that's super important when you look at certainly global health issues, because what happens there is it's just killing off the bacteria. And in some cases, you know, I I know viruses are a whole different (laughs) animal, so to speak, even though they aren't aren't living things, but it's a little bit different with with its um, mitigation of that. But what happens if you look at it at a global health level, it's creating a physical structure of topography that eradicates or can help to eradicate things like deadly bacteria without having to hit it with a bunch of chemicals that a you have to create the chemicals b we don't need to create any more chemicals people but C, the bacteria doesn't have anything to learn from and say all right i'm going to evolve now and i'm gonna you're gonna to have to create a new chemical to come at me next year this is what we have with you know the, the, the super bugs that come around but it's hmm. fascinating that we can learn that from the shark skin right
0: yeah, and I mean, it, that's one great example. And, and as I was even Googling biomimicry examples, and I'd love to throw some of these at you just to kind of get your perspective. But let's say the idea of planes and how birds have given inspiration to bugs with water collection or whales with turbines. You know, when you hear those ones, like what comes to mind and what maybe anything you could elaborate on in regards to? whales bugs or birds
1: those are all fun and, and half hour conversations <laughs> i think the funny thing is so, so whales and turbines and the funny little story in that is is the the guy who invented the company whale power based upon you know the fins of humpback whales his name was frank fish so you kind of feel feel like he's predestined i, I get that you know whales are mammals and not fish but, but it seems like he was already on the path And so what happened there was what is really interesting to this definition of biomimicry that you asked about is that sometimes we go from biology to design, or we go from design to biology. Design to biology says, I have something I'm trying to solve for, and I know what it is that I'm trying to solve for. And it might be thermoregulation, or it might be water capture, these types of things. And then I go out and look look into nature and say, all right, well, what's what's doing that? And there's a great website, by the way, asknature.org, where you can go and, and just type in you know any question that helps you to go see how nature does these things, so that is designed to biology. But in Frank Fish's case with whale power, it was it was biology to design. He saw this. He saw a sculpture of a humpback whale and said, "Hey, you know why are those those bumps on the leading edge? I would feel like they would be on the trailing edge, like like the ailerons on a plane, like you mentioned with with flight, right?" So he looked into it and realized that, that those tubercles, as they're called, on the leading edge of a humpback whale fin is what enables those massive animals to make these super tight you know, turns in, in the water. And then they do bubble feeding. So a couple of them will go and they'll spin around and they'll... And they'll create a vortex, basically, of fish, and then they'll come up from the bottom and just scoop them up in their mouths. But it was interesting because it was biology to design. And so part of what we can do, you know, you and I and anybody listening is just go outside right after this or, or now or whatever. Just look around, you know, look at things, how they're shaped, how they're formed, how they're how they're organized. And question it, and say, "What if?" and just be curious about it. This whole thing is about childlike curiosity, and I began with that childhood story because I have tried to nurture that, foster that as we go along. But that's where all of innovation can really, you know, succeed. In my book,
0: I couldn't agree more. Uh, and that's uh, even thinking about the Freakonomics books. I know one of their the recent books was called "Think Like a Freak," but even more so within that, it said "Think Like a Kid." And sometimes you got to ask those really mundane questions. And and some of that's just keep asking why until you can't ask why anymore. And sometimes, I mean, just even like you said, looking, I really like this idea of the biology to design, where sometimes if you're stumped about how to think of how to maybe do something bad, or maybe even, you don't even know what you want to do, but you just want some inspiration, looking at nature and asking those questions about how things work can give you that inspiration. And I'd like to tie that into the SDGs as a whole. I mean, obviously there's 17 of them in quite a, we could take a biomimicry lens to, to all 17 in some capacity, but to maybe look at SDG 9 or 11 or even 12 in regards to, that maybe I'd be interested in your perspective on, let's say cities, cities sustainable cities and communities. Mm-hmm. What are some examples of biomimicry or maybe I, concepts of how biology to design have helped shape better cities, and whether that's through flow of people, whether it's with construction of buildings, and I'd love some sort of idea of example, and then maybe even something about what's still left to be done, and maybe some areas, the biggest areas for opportunity that you see.
1: Yeah, well, cities, and certainly, you know, you know Los Angeles, it's a really interesting thing To know that a lot of, uh, you know, I I work with the U.S. Green Building Council. I run an accelerator here of growth stage companies specifically looking to solve for net zero energy, water, waste and carbon. Right. And it's all about the built environment. And the thing about the built environment in our cities is that, you know, to put up these buildings, we had to bulldoze things that were nature that provided us, you know, some level of service (laughs) you know, at some point. So that's a challenge, but now more and more the built environment is meant to help us you know work towards these net zero and eventually net positive you know outcomes. So how can a building capture rainwater in ways and, and create and use that gray water for actually repurposing into landscaping and these types of things so we can have more greenery around buildings and so that for example, um, you know how, how can it might maybe do it? in a similar way to how leaves often have these hydrophobic and hydrophilic you know, characteristics to them so that the water moves in the directions that it needs to move. And so we're looking at those types of things in the built environment. And by the way, you mentioned a beetle. So while I'm on that topic, the, our favorite you know, biomimicry desert beetle just raises its legs up and pushes his back up, its carapace up into the air, and, and captures fog. And that's through hydrophilic and hydrophobic features, on its carapace and what it basically does is it you know hydrophilic says hey water come here hydrophobic says all right move this direction go away from this area of of, of the the back of the beetle and and this beetle funnels it right to its mouth and so they're using that some of that emulating that for fog catching nuts for example but i'll tell you also you know kevin you haven't been in la you know you've seen these barrel cacti right Mm -hmm. with geometry geometry is just crazy insane awesome but we have a lot of the, uh, the, the barrel cactus is, is native to here. We see them all over the place. And I love seeing it because it's a fantastic design for biomimicry in two ways. One is it's, it's pleated all the way around. And so that pleating actually allows it to more easily you know, manage its, its, its water. So if it takes on water, it can store water by just you know moving outward a little bit. But the really cool thing I think about it, relative buildings, is it's self-shading. And so we're seeing a lot of architects looking to self-shading properties so we can reduce energy consumption. And by reducing energy consumption, we reduce you know, carbon and these types of things just by how you can shade a building with the sun at a certain angle. And sometimes just by putting a, something jutting out from the building like four feet based upon how a barrel cactus might do it. And it's not super complicated to do things like that. But I think at the core of it all is that Biomimicry teaches us to be more resilient and resilience in this definition, especially for sustainable cities, is multiple strategies to achieve the same goal. And what I was going to mention earlier is that it's curious that we, you know, the cities of the future are really where we're expecting more and more people just to live in cities and Mm -hmm. we are advocating density, right? And so for us to advocate density, we also have to have, you know, sustainable, equitable means for people to to eat, to move around. And the key to it all, at the very core of biomimicry is being locally attuned. We just need to move around a little bit less. Mm -hmm.
0: Are you familiar with NEOM being built outside Saudi Arabia? I am. So that, I remember being very interested in terms of how they are harnessing the wind, just the natural wind to cool and to provide heating. And I remember watching one of your videos about power copying termite mounds to to build structures in like Zimbabwe. But that seemed to drive that concept of harnessing the natural environment, maybe not trying to do something that works in California and applying that to Chile or to Rwanda or whatever it may be, but really looking at the local environment, making it locally attuned. So yeah, just maybe, one, I'd love your thoughts on Neom as kind of a city, that concept design, but then maybe tell me a little bit more about that locally attuned and how you need to really have that local grassroots lens.
1: Well, I, I think it's fascinating, you know, a concept, you know, a future city like Neom in the regard that, um I recently gave a presentation, actually just a really fun conversation with a couple of uh, my peers in this, in this community, asking if, we, if Disney's Tomorrowland was changed into net zero land, what, what would that look like? And some of it was like, it would look like Wakanda. You know, and so there's, I mean, you look at pictures of Neom and the plans for it? It looks like that with a little bit of a Singapore built in, right? So I think it's fascinating to do that, especially if you're in a place where you can build something completely ground up, tabula rasa, as you can do in, in a lot of the Middle East. And, and I've, I've spent a lot of time there, so I've seen it, especially, you know, I was in Qatar and Doha and, and a lot of it just, you know, 100 years ago, there was nothing there. And now it's this architectural future city, right? And so I think it's fascinating how all that can happen. And I think it's so fascinating that I've forgotten what the uh, the other aspect of your question was.
0: Well, it was uh, then tying it to being locally attuned. And so sure. I know I brought up just the using whatever is in the environment, whether it's the mountains or the wind or whatever yeah. water is there, like how to leverage and how from a design thinking perspective, how should people thinking about sustainable cities and communities approach biomimicry, whether it's design to biology or biology to design, how should they really look at and consider the local geographical characteristics?
1: It's really two things come to mind. One is that when you, if it's biology to design or design to biology, at some point you're going to go and look for champion species in an environment and you're going to abstract the functionality that, you know, they built into their design, you know, in nature, invariably, form will follow function. It's got to have a function. And that, that beetle's carapace, I just mentioned, that's one material, chitin, but it provides for protection, thermoregulation, you know, water capture, some level of, you know, mating ritual, I'm sure, right? So it does all these different things. But the key to it is, is also that those champion species have adapted and evolved to live in the environment in which you're looking to solve that problem. So that's why we look at the champion species like a barrel cactus is best suited for this environment called Southern California. It may not be the champion species we want to look at, you know, for Cleveland, Ohio, right? Or in the desert of Neom. So it's partly that locally attuned bit. And the second thing though, is really, it's just about abundance. As humans, we've come to you know, really value gold and diamonds and courtside seats at the playoffs and these types of things. But really in nature, it's like, what do I have to work with? What are my constraints? And constraints can actually drive curiosity and innovation. If I've got plenty of time and money and resources, you know, I don't have to get real creative. Nature works with what it's got. And sometimes that's not a lot, but it looks for things that are abundant, sunlight, gravity, water. These are the things that it runs on and also feedback loops. So what's abundant? I got water, I got sun, I got rain, I got wind then I will design around that to harness that because that's freely available energy. And that's really how nature works. So that's those two things are the locally attuned aspects.
0: So a lot lot of good context and inspiration there about how to use what you got and, and how nature does great at being resilient. One thing I actually have on that thought, I've always, after watching, um, I think it was yeah, it was called Artificial, Patagonia produced it. But a lot of it talked about is if you kind of get out of the way and let nature do its thing, nature will ultimately rebound. And that to some extent is sort of saying, hey, like if you let nature do its thing, uh, nature will find a way to persevere. And I think that's a, it's a good lesson of inspiration that you can persevere and overcome some of these different design challenges if you kind of just go back to the basic core, whether that's just the natural water cycle, you know, try not to interrupt it with dams or try not to interrupt it with a bunch of concrete. And so just kind of speaking to, let's just say the the water cycle in general, or kind of letting nature flow naturally, what are your thoughts in regards to getting out of the way and letting nature do its thing and even using that as sort of a design inspiration for any type of innovation generally?
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's commonly said, you know, nature doesn't really need our help. It just needs us to you know, not make it work so hard, right? I think it's interesting if you, if you look at regenerative agriculture, as opposed to the monocropping industrialized cultural system that is most of the world, certainly the U.S., you know, nature will find ways for natural uh, pest control and nature will find ways for natural, you know, water retention and all different types of things. If you just let things work together and Nature, we, I think you said Jurassic Park earlier, so it was like life a um, away. Yep. And so it does. And I think we just need to get out of our own heads, really. I mean, one thing that we, we say in biomimicry is is just quiet your cleverness. Don't think that you have to recreate everything. And, and I will tell you, certainly as, as a business person, as an innovator, I found relief When I found biomimicry, because I thought, "Wow, we don't have to recreate the wheel." And there's something about the human ego that says, "Oh, you know, we we have to constantly create new things, and it has to come from our own heads." And it's simply not true. Or, and really, for most of our existence, it wasn't, because we looked to nature for all these. You know, nature was our mentor. You know, it was our model and our measure of success. We this was it was our school. At some point, we, we industrialized and we said, no, we're smarter than nature. And we also felt like it's our warehouse, you know, store of goods, you know, not just a store of knowledge, which is really what it is. So what we're talking about here is is the, it's, the, it's the ultimate and most generous of, of mentors nature is. And if we would just quiet our cleverness and say, I don't have to have a brand new idea, look around and frankly, put some things together. We can create a chimera of solutions in many cases, it doesn't mean it's always sustainable. So we have to have this ethos about it. But what I mentioned earlier about time scale, nature works at different scales. And I think this is an important point. Spider silk has a stronger, you know, tensile strength than steel. But I can't create enough spider silk at a size and a volume that can stop an airplane landing on an aircraft carrier, right? But there's something there, and also the time scale. And for example, you know, you're familiar with LA and, and South Central Los Angeles. We were just working on a biomimicry project and still are in South LA looking at bioremediation and biomimicry practices to pull contaminants out of soil. In a lot of these areas, there's, there's one the entire city block that's been chain linked off for 17 years because no one wants to come in and extract the contaminants here in that soil. So they just let it sit there and that could be available to the entire community. And so we said, well, how can we use plants and mushrooms and, and worms to go in there and pull those things out in a more natural way? And part of the challenge is it takes time. So the key to biomimicry is, I've, I've got a, a visual that I, of course, can't show you, but it, it's leaf-cutter ants. And I think you can find it if you Google it. They're the leaf-cutter ants that have actually created a bridge of themselves between two leaves. And so, the, you know, right there in the middle, you've got 10, 20 ants that are just out in the air because they've managed to bridge themselves between point A and point B. And really, that's what biomimicry is. It's the most beautiful way to cut corners. Because we can look out, we don't have to wait 3.8 billion years. We don't have to wait 100 years. We, some ways, we may not have to wait five minutes by looking at how nature does it. Nature figured it out a long time ago. It took a long time to do it, but maybe we can actually come up with these solutions that are so desperately needed with the, with the clicking ticking clock right now on climate action and some other things that you know is probably you know it's certainly inherent in all of the SDGs and it's definitely number thirteen unlucky or lucky as it, as it might be. Hmm. But that's really the whole of biomimicry is, is what, how do we get there faster?
0: Yep. And we really could take a deep dive into all 17 SDGs. And I want to I do two more as specific SDGs and get your perspectives and then we'll we'll wrap up. But let's say one thing that is is very common among a lot of SDG-related entrepreneurs ain't just something that is arguably one of the biggest contributors to climate change in general is The stuff we wear and the stuff we consume and just whether it's fast fashion or just just the nature of just always wanting to buy stuff consumerism one-time use plastic goods stuff like that that i think we've all realized when looking at the the rise of microplastics the the amount of wastewater discharge like all these compounding issues that are creating the challenges that exist for, for everyone and predominantly those that are less fortunate or, or more a little, little bit more disadvantaged, I would like to hear you kind of riff on SDG 12, responsible consumption and production. Like what are some maybe challenges you see within where we stand now with responsible consumption and production? And is there any, like what biomimicry perspective do you have in regards to how we could design whether what we eat and drink to what we wear more effectively with some type of biomimicry inspiration.
1: At the heart of it is if we want to embrace our human ego and, and drive to innovation, we are getting better about material ecology and actually creating materials that are longer lasting, that you know perform more functions, that can be recycled more easily. So it's interesting about fast fashion. Wow. I mean, the thing is, it's it's so, there's so much inertia there that it's hard to slow people down in in their consumption habits. But a lot of what I think is interesting is when you get into models, like, you know, a lot of, you know, certainly the younger generations are not wanting to own things. And so that's driving... You know, leasing things and actually returning things, and so I can rent a pair of jeans, right? <laughs> you know, maybe am I going to do that? I, I don't know, but there are ways that the manufacturers, with their what we're calling, you know, manufacturer extended responsibility, are now not saying, "Hey, consumer, it's it's just on you to deal with it." You know, they're actually taking things back. So I think we're getting there into you know circular economies, and the whole idea of that is that we can you know, rethink and reduce and repair and recycle. And that's at the the core of biomimicry because we have like technical nutrients of of how we go about innovation. We also have biological nutrients of how living systems work. And so in that, we can actually rethink waste. And so the key to all of it, circular economy especially, is that we design waste out of the equation, right? It's not enough just to recycle. And so that's important to it, is, is this end of life, you know, use. And I, I tell you, like one of the companies, I'm a co-founder in a solar development company called Morpho Energy, you know, named after the blue Morpho butterfly, which is another fantastic biomimicry story because that's not pigment in the blue Morpho's wings. I wish I could show you a picture here, but, or this one I have here in a frame. It was dead before I framed it, by the way, so don't think that one <laughs> out and killed it. But just, you know, it's, it's all refraction and reflection of, of light in a really brilliant way. But, what we're doing with Morpho Energy is, is looking at all the decommissioned solar panels that would these things have been made to, to stay on a rooftop for 25, 30, 50 years. And so they're not really made to be recycled. So they're all going to landfills. So what can you do with them, especially since some of them are still able to be used? So we need to find new ways. You could take a solar panel now that it's not it's not gonna be creating a whole bunch of energy. It's not the latest greatest technology for Acme Corp to have on the rooftop, but you know what? it can provide shade in a pagoda, in a community garden, and it can run, you know, the amplifier for the concert, you know, on the weekend, and maybe a water fountain and some light for safety. Let's find other ways to think about these things. And so that's really that's not specifically biomimicry. But the whole concept is that nature just, there is no waste in nature. It's this, you know, mm-hmm. one's treasure, trash is another treasure.
0: Yeah, so, I, think uh, I like that concept of whether you're designing waste out of the equation or or in some capacity, finding a way to use what was once thought of waste or an output as the input for something else. And I think that ties into the symbiotic relationships and uh-huh. how one animal or one one's part of nature feeds off the other part and they both kind of benefit from each other. Any examples or insights to that whole kind of, like you just said, one man's trash and another man's treasure. Like what any specific examples you could shed some light on?
1: Well, you know, we talked about a a few things around, let's say regenerative agriculture, but let's just talk about just straight up honeybees. And, you know, I don't soapbox and advocate, you know, like stop the killing of the bees. But the fact of the matter is that's a huge thing. A honeybee's... I think it's, what, $15 billion annually of work that honeybees do for us that no one really pays for.
0: <laughs> you like, know? what kind of work do you speak of that they do?
1: It's pollination. They're the pollinators. And so, you know, if the pollinators went away, then, then, then the food goes away, in many respects. And look, I'm not an expert on honeybees, but $15 billion U.S. annually that no one's paying for. And that's an example of ecosystem services. And that's another one. I think the number for that is $28 trillion I saw was a number for the annual estimated value of what nature provides to us, free of charge for pollination, air purification, water purification, the whole hydrologic cycle, all that's going on. And that's, that's both biotic, you know, with biology and abiotic, all the different things in nature that aren't living. And it's amazing that if we knew... If we really embrace that as humans, the interesting thing is there's an author that I quote sometimes on this, Robert Cialdini, is that by our own human nature, which by the way doesn't always mean a good thing. Somebody says, you know, if that's well, that's human nature. It's not always a great thing, you know. Which yeah,
0: is I hate I made mean, that whole phrase of this is the way we've always done it, and I hear that I'm like, always. Uh, you mean for like fifty years or hundred years? And you think back about nature being. You know, millions and billions of years old. It's sort of hard to, to swallow that whole. This is the way we've always done it, because it's totally not true.
1: You're exactly right, because we can point back to how we did it. You know, 100 years before now, and we say, "Oh, well, from there all the way back." You know, 30,000 years. <laughs> quite different. are we, quite different, and so at the core of that, you know, our ancestors really—they shared their food, they shared their skills. And, you know, what's been referred to as a, an honored network of obligation. And at the core of that is, is reciprocity. And, and Robert Cialdini calls it the rule of reciprocity. And the fact is that if I give you something, Kevin, or you give me something, you know, there's an inclination to, to give it back. That is part of our human nature. It's not everybody. But somewhere in there, there's there's a mechanism that says, hey, you did a favor for me. I'm going to do something back for you. You gave me this. I'm going to give this back for you. Lit this to me. You lent me your car for the weekend. I filled it up with gas and I washed it. Returned it better than I borrowed it. And that reciprocity inherently in us as humans, I have to believe that could be kind of a trigger for how we can deal with climate action, let's say. And climate change is to say, well, look, nature's trying so hard to give us not, not just the ideas and all the free R&D. You know, look, I'm an innovator. I mean, that, that's all free. That all the intellectual property is free, you know, but it's giving us the ideas, it's giving us the, the mentorship, it's giving us the guidance if we can listen to it. But it's also giving us all those services. And if we could just really recognize that, we maybe want to give back to it a little bit and not maximize how we extract from it, but instead optimize, you know, you grow a crop and you take half the crop this year so that the next crop, you know, it's, it's these are the, the indigenous people had to figure it out. You know, but this reciprocity. Yeah, speak, can... speak
0: to that a little bit. I know one of the other concepts within the DePaul class and just in general that I've always been fascinated by is, is indigenous practices and, and some of that indigenous knowledge and how they lived so in tune with the land and it was never taking more than they than they needed. And it was just this natural marriage where it was just a perfect balance and in harmony. Like what are some insights or guidance that you could glean in regards to how indigenous and aboriginal cultures mastered living with nature and and copying nature through biomimicry practices
1: well first they didn't have the distractions of fast fashion and and iphones yes that helped and they were definitely locally attuned they often stayed you know rooted in place but they just you know had a sense that, and and probably witnessed it. If we do this, then that goes away. I don't want that to go away. So I'm going to do this a little bit. And these things took time. A lot of what we're talking about here, as far as the challenges of, of, you know, modern humans has been in the last, let's say hundred years, 200 years. And these cultures had lived for thousands of years where that was how they did it because they saw that it works. Remember life replicates strategies that work and so they just had it down and i wish i could speak to it I'll, I'll give your audience here uh if you go to um robin wall kimmerer has one of my favorite books called braiding sweetgrass is all about you know that and she talks about for instance the three sisters i think it's you know the three different vegetables if you plant them together they'll help it's like corn and squash and what is what's the last one so so somebody's out there's laughing and they're like of course maize or i don't remember but if you plant them in such a way that the corn provides the shade the squash provides and they all work together
0: corn bees and beans and squash
1: Corn's beans and squash. There you go. Yep. And you know, modern day, we just we have a row of corn, row beans, row squash, you know, but really it's that's not how it should work. So the the indigenous cultures really had it figured out. And the crazy thing, the really crazy thing is that we think we're so smart that we, you know, there's too many people walking around thinking, oh, those people are so dumb and simple. But man, they have it figured out.
0: <laughs> you know, sometimes like you, like we said earlier, getting out of the way, let nature do its thing and not trying to overcomplicate it because frankly, nature has it figured out. We just maybe are getting in the way or probably the bigger issue is that we're impatient. And this is something I always struggle with is the focus on growth and just needing to just grow in general. And maybe that's sort of a a problem with focus on kind of country level on gross domestic product. And if you're not growing, then you're irrelevant. And I think the SDGs are starting to paint a picture that, it's not only about growth and we need to live within these planetary boundaries to be able to provide economic act- activity, but, not, but also still allow the world and the earth to, to do its thing and provide these, uh, what I like to do, phrase it, these ecosystem services to us so the earth can sustain itself and we're not going to go through some... I, almost, I hate. I have, first thing that came to mind was a, a nuclear winter. That would be much more of a, a man-made cause thing. But even still, like desertification or ocean acidification, I mean, those those are definitely things that keep me up at night. And I'm just kind of interested in, I guess, your thoughts too about what are some kind of things that maybe right now that keep you up at night that you're you're worried about in regards to where we're at and where we're going, but then on the flip side, also something that you're most excited about in regards to this current state of our humanity. And, and of course, would love your biomimicry lens on both of those.
1: Yeah, well, I think something that concerns me, I'll go back to sharks for a moment because I'm a big fan of sharks. I've got a first edition of Jaws here. which by the hey, way,
0: you, big shark a guy as well. Sharknado, Shark Week, to, there you it's, go. It's, a, it's a way of life.
1: As a whale life. Then you love it. I've got the first edition of Peter Benchley's Jaws here. And, and the shark on that cover, man, it does not look as scary as, as the one that went out on the movie posters. And Peter Benchley eventually really was one of the great conservationists for sharks because he said, Oh wow, what have I done? I've made the shark public enemy number one. Everyone's going out and killing them now. And so there's there's this graphic about how many sharks, you know, kill people per year. And and I mean how many people are killed by sharks per year and how many are killed per hour. And I don't know if you, if you Google it sometime, I think it was Joe Chernov and there was, it was a collaboration between a couple of people, but it shows like 13 people. And then then this, this, this graphic goes on for like three feet of sharks. And it's basically 11,000 plus sharks are killed per hour. Wow. You know, and so do the math. I mean, this is an apex predator that here again, ecosystem services provides a surface, a service out there. You know, it actually cleans up a lot of the garbage, a lot of the, the dead material out in the ocean. And it helps the ocean work the way it does. Now, when that goes away, what happens? You know, and so that does concern me. And I've, I've also, yeah, I've, I've got shark jaws here. I've got all kinds of shark stuff, as you can imagine. But what I'm holding in my hand right now is it's as large as my palm, And it's a megalodon tooth that was dug up in a phosphate pit in, uh, I think, North Carolina. And it reminds me of one of our biomemigry sayings, which is, you know, failures are fossils. Mm -hmm. And so we just have to remember that, you know, again, things sometimes don't work. And that's not replicated. But back to what excites me is I still have some hope here. I mean, maybe you have a lot of hope and maybe I'm just being silly about it. But I think it's an interesting thing that could be Debated, but in a lot of the community in the biomimicry community, we are advocating. Hey, people, don't be so stupid. I mean, look, nature, form, process, system. Nature is model a model to emulate. Nature is a, is a measure of success and sustainability. Nature as the most generous of mentors. Right? You know why are you being so stupid, people? But I think at the same time, we're not giving enough credit to the smart people or the smarter people, or the people, let's just say this, let's not even make it dumb or smart, the people who are attuned, who are listening. And I think that's a lot of it. Nature runs on feedback loops, right? And that feedback loop, sometimes it's just an exchange of energy, nutrients, chemicals, sound, color, you know, could be visuals. But these feedback loops that we're getting from nature, we're not looping back. It's telling us, hey, (laughs) you Going a little far there, you know, (laughs) might want to stop there. We're not really listening, but I think increasingly there are people who are getting out and saying, wait a minute, this is, I want to keep this thing. I want to, I want to keep this, this world. I love it here. And I'll tell you, you know, I worked with Al Gore and live earth leading up to COP 21 in Paris in in 2015. And we came up with a, a campaign that I made sure was. Kind of attached to biomimicry. And, and it was, it was an important thing about being excited, inspired. The campaign theme was simply because we live here. And the idea was why take climate action? Why adapt and evolve, you know, or why move from a lot of it is, is your data adaptational and then all the way up, you know, to, you know, drawdown. let's say, right. But why should I care And the whole message was to be locally attuned for you, Kevin, where you are, me, Colin, where I am, to look outside and say, well, what are all these things that I really cherish, that I love, that I want to keep? You know, what are those things? Because conservation begins with affection, you know. And affection begins a lot of times with that childlike curiosity, like, what is that? Or who is that? And once you know a little more, maybe you get a little more entwined and you get a little more love for it. And so when I look out into my yard here, when I look out into my city here, when I fly over it, when I'm in the woods, when I'm skiing or whatever it is, I see things that I want to conserve. And it may not mean that I am such an advocate to ensure that the the island nation's You know, or not underwater. I don't know that I can do much about that for Fiji right now, let's say. I don't know if I can do it for Miami Beach. (laughs) But what I do know is right here where we have wildfires and other things, I've got things that are important to me, things I want to save. And so that is the whole message, really, in all of this is to say, what do you want to save? What do you love? And then be locally attuned and do your thing where you can. There was a bumper sticker in the 70s. It's like, think, you know, think globally, act locally, right? Still resonates. And that's all of it. Because what can you do right where you are? Maybe a little bit of stoic philosophy philosophy in there. But where are you right now? Where are you listening right now? What door can you walk out? What window can you look through at something that you want to save? And then think about how nature's working there. Maybe, yeah, (laughs) get out of its way. Might be not a bad idea.
0: Well said, Colin. I was about to ask you, what was kind of one final mic drop that you wanted to leave with us or maybe just a a question or a challenge you kind of just said that but i'll rephrase it there any sort of final question or challenge or one key phrase that you want to re-ingrain in everyone's brain before we finish here
1: I think just we've talked about the value of questions. You and I both know, as a, certainly this audience, you know, the value of and how the scientific method works, the comfort you have to have, especially where I sit as an entrepreneur, as an innovator with some schooling in science to say, I'm going to ask a question here and I may not get the answer that I want. I might not get an answer at all. I might get another question having some comfort in that and actually being able to refine to get to better questions. That's the key to all this. This is what biomimicry teaches us how to ask better questions and be comfortable with different answers than we're expecting. But I think the whole aspect of of what it is and might drop or not, it's really about what if, and it's about what is going into what if. And so biomimicry is a great lens for saying what what if we could use that what if we thought a little bit differently but it's all about asking better questions it's all about that childlike curiosity and that curiosity is really where, where i want to end because especially working in an innovation space it can get really lonely and tiring out in the middle you know of trying to solve something but the more you you stoke that and spark that and feed that and fuel that and keep saying how does that work and how could that work better. That's really, you know, if we want to say the, the American way, especially the approach to the SDGs, that really was more of our culture until even recently. It's still, still here, but I think we could stoked up fire a little more to say, look, why should I do this? Because I can, because we can do better. And so by a he sort of prompts us in that direction and says, hey, you know what? You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just look outside, look within. And the answers are probably going to be there in some form.
0: Colin, I, I couldn't agree more. And one thing that I think I struggled with too younger in life was having this hypothesis that I wanted to prove so desperately, but sometimes you need to not assume that you already know what the answer is going to be and be looking for all that data that you want to prove your question right, but be okay with going down a couple different rabbit holes. Be okay with having that question lead to another question, lead to another question and, and just going on a journey of exploration. And I think biomimicry, as you paint, is a great lens to explore innovation, to look at the SDGs as a whole and and to um, most importantly, as you said, be curious, be collaborative and do not be afraid to fail because there's definitely, as we know from nature, nature fails all the time, but that's even part of the design to fail and to use that failure as a form of improvement and getting better the next time. Absolutely. Well, Colin, on behalf of the SDG Talks Community and, and some of my DePaul students and just the world as a whole, thank you for the work that you're doing with Biomimicry and uh, keep it up and I look forward to seeing what's next from you.
1: Fantastic, thanks for having me.
0: Of course, till next time. <laughs> thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash and United Nations community.
1: Goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. If you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talk.